This morning I'll be reading John 10, chapter 10, verse 1 to 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But who, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hears his voice, and he calls his own sheep by his name and leads them out. When he has brought out his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said against them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find the pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Who is hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay my life down, that I may take it back up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This change I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He is a demon. He is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, There is not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Well, good morning and welcome again to church this morning. Um, for those folks who have been on holiday over the last couple of weeks, it's, it's good to see you back. I hope you've had an enjoyable time and indeed a good Easter break. It was good also yesterday to have some sunshine in Aberdeen, wasn't it? Short-lived, I think, but we'll see how this afternoon goes. We come now to to spend time in the Word, and to that end we're going to read our second passage for today. I'm going to be reading from the second half of John 10. Lewis read uh, the first half uh, to us so well for context, but we're going to spend our time focusing on the verses that are between 22 and 42. And whilst this is a standalone Sunday in respect of our series, it does follow up on some of the themes that we've been thinking about this past couple of weeks from Mark's Gospel. I'm going to be reading from the ESV translation, and this section of text is subheaded in that translation as this. I, that's Jesus, and the Father are one. Let's read from verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. At that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, 
How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, They sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Verse 40. He went across again the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help this morning as we come round your word. Lord, may we know you better through its reading. May we know you better through spending time in it. Lord, we pray that you would illuminate yourself and your son and your spirit to us from scripture. Lord, we pray that we would gain a deeper understanding of you. And Lord, that we would leave this place this morning, a people encouraged by your word, a people challenged by your word, and a people that have our eyes fixed on you. Lord, may you be glorified this morning, we pray. In your precious Son's name. Amen. Who among you enjoys a good riddle? It's not something I've been ever very good at, neither in formulating them or indeed guessing the correct answer. But I reckon that there's perhaps a few folks in here who do enjoy a good riddle. And to that end, I thought I'd try out a few on you today. This does involve audience participation, so please don't leave me hanging. On the screen behind me, you're going to see three Who Am I riddles. And as we go through them, please just offer up or shout out if you think you have the correct answer. These are not mine. These are from Google. And when I tried them on myself, I never got any right. So please, just go for it. Can we have the first one on the screen behind us? I should have got this one. It says this. A father's child, a mother's child, yet no one's son. Who am I? Did I hear a wife there? No, the correct answer is a daughter. Well done. The second one. I'll be very impressed if anyone gets this. I have a heart that never beats, 
I have a home, but I never sleep. I can take a man's house and build another's, and I love to play games with my many brothers. I am a king among fools. Who am I? I'm very impressed, Jane. Correct. A king in a deck of cards. Okay, third riddle. We should get this one. This one's somewhere in between easy and hard. I'm tall when I'm young. I'm short when I'm old. Who am I? What was that? Not a pencil. You're on the right kind of shape. Candle. Well done. Excellent. Some of those were easy, some a little bit trickier. In all instances, you did better than me. And I think when we read a riddle, we look for that little clue or that little thing that just makes it a little bit clearer to give us confidence to go with the right answer. Well, in John chapter 10, Jesus has been building for his audience a who am I riddle. But it's an explicit riddle. A really clear riddle. It was and should have been obvious enough for everyone to get it. And Jesus wanted them to get it. We see that earlier in the chapter where where Lewis read to us in verse 6 and 7. If you flip back it says this. This figure of speech Jesus used to them, verse 6, but they did not understand what he was saying. So Jesus again said it to them. In other words, Jesus was using metaphoric language to describe who he was, but he was doing it plainly, going over and over again to his audience, yet they did not understand. He has tried to tell them who he is, but they don't get it. So he tries again by building up this picture once more. Let me paraphrase it for you. And you can follow it if you skip through some of the verses with me. He says this, Jesus says that there is a sheepfold, and he is the door to that sheepfold, verse 7. And he is the good shepherd, verse 11. And he is sheep that are in his Jewish flock, that's in verses 1 through 3. And he is sheep that are outside of his Jewish flock, i.e. other sheep that are not in his fold, verse 16. And his mission to the world, given to him by God the Father, is to lay down his life for his sheep, verse 17, and then to take up his life again, verse 18, and to call his sheep by name all over the world through the voice of his disciples. And he says that his sheep know his voice when he calls them, and they follow him, verses 16 and 27. And in the end, there will be one flock from all peoples of the world, enjoying eternal life together, verse 28. And there will be one shepherd, verse 16. And complete safety, verses 28 and 29. And pleasure for the sheep forevermore. And even though it's a figure of speech, he says all this plainly enough so that the veil over his deity is partly lifted. But what do we see as the people's reaction? We see that some of his listeners think he's gone crazy. Read verse 20. He is a demon and he is insane. Why? Listen to him. Which of course may be an understandable response. If you were to hear someone say, I have the authority to lay my life down 
and I have the authority to take it up again. Dead people, by definition, don't take up their lives again. As Johnny stressed last week from Mark's gospel, Mark goes at great lengths to point out that Jesus was dead. It said four or five times in a short space of of time between the end of Mark 15 and Mark 16. Therefore, if there is to be resurrection from the dead, God does it, not the dead. And that's the point. Now, we don't know how much time goes on in between uh, what Lewis read in verses 1 through 21 and indeed the section that I read from 22 through to the end. But I think not much. Jesus, we're told, came up to Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths, as recorded in John 7. And now, according to John 10, at the part where I started, it's now the time of the Feast of Dedication. And the Feast of Dedication follows roughly two months after the Feast of Booths. And we don't know how spread out those events were, or our narrative in this passage, But what we do know is that the interaction at which Jesus was speaking to the Jews picks up here in verse 22 from where it had left off in the earlier section that Lewis had read on the back of this riddle or this metaphor or figure of speech. So what I'd like to do is to try and give you the big picture of what I think we see in verses 22 through 42 and then walk through each chunk in a little more detail. So we have this. Jesus is walking into the temple. And according to verse 24, the Jews gathered around him and said, How long, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Messiah, the long hoped for one who would bring in the kingdom of God, tell us plainly. In other words, that that figure of speech, that riddle, that that metaphoric language that you've been using previously with all this talk about sheep and shepherds and doors, well, that's not plain enough for us. We just want you to tell us plainly. We want plain speech. Answer us this outright. Are you the Messiah? And what happens then is that Jesus answers them. But way beyond what they expected. To the point where they're on the brink of killing him for blasphemy. And to defuse this crisis, Jesus deflects their rage with a peculiar biblical maneuver. And in the little time that this buys him, he uses another illustration to avoid their seizure. And gives them another invitation to listen to his credentials. And then they try to seize him again. And then he escapes over the Jordan. So we're going to spend the next 15 minutes just walking through that big picture in a little bit more detail. We're going to start with the question that is asked of Jesus. Are you the Messiah? And then break down the resulting events into three chunks. Jesus' answer to that question. The Jews' response to Jesus' answer. And then his reaction to their response. So an answer, a response, and then a reaction. Firstly then, Jesus' answer to the question. They say at the end of verse 24, if you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answers with this in verse 25. I told you. 
In other words, that's what this figure of speech has all been about. The door, the good shepherd, the one who, like it was prophesied in Isaiah 53, lays down his life. The one who has the invincible, supernatural authority to take back his own life from the jaws of death. The one who is gathering a people to live in forever joy. Am I the Messiah? I told you. That's my answer. And then he adds in verse 25. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Not only have I told you, but I have shown you. This is always the way in the life of Jesus. It's not an either or, but rather a both and. The word and the work make his Messiahship clear. Deeds alone don't make it plain. Words alone don't make it powerful. But together the witness of his word and the witness of his work are decisive. So instead of giving you a new figure of speech, or indeed no figure of speech, I will press this one as far as I can possibly go. I will go way beyond telling you about Messiahship. Read verses 26 to 30. But you do not believe me because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There are three significant parts here to note. Firstly, when the Father gives his sheep into the all-powerful hands of the Son, they are still in the Father's hand. Verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Even though the Father has put them into the Son's hand, they are in the Father's hand. What does that imply? Well, it implies that the Father and Son are one, right? That those people who are in the Father's hands are also in the hands of the Son. Secondly, notice that Jesus explains this oneness with few words. Look at verse 30. I and the Father are one. His final answer about his identity is way beyond Messiahship. It is oneness with God the Father. And then thirdly, notice that Jesus takes us to this answer by showing how this oneness serves our salvation, our eternal safety, and our joy. The Father and I are one. No one can take you from me because I am stronger than all. And no one can take you from my Father because he is stronger than all. When you're in my hand, you're in his hand. When you're in his hand, you're in my hand. Our all-powerfulness, our unity are your safety, are your salvation. Amen? This answer, of course, is nothing new. John 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus and the Father are one doctrinal truth. Doctrinal truth that has eternal, positive implications and ramifications for you and I. For if you know Jesus, then you know the Father. 
And if you know these things, then the promise contained herein, as Jesus has set out in his answer to his audience, is that you are in safe hands. No one, no one can snatch you. No one can deny you. You're in the eternal, impenetrable grasp of the safest hands that there has been and ever will be. Nothing can loosen you from that grasp. And therefore, when you feel dissuaded, when you feel shaken and unsure of your faith, when you face those seasons of doubt and question your eternal safety, then recall to memory the promises contained within these verses when Jesus answers the question, are you the Messiah? I am the Messiah and infinitely more. And all of this is infinitely relevant for your eternal safety now and forevermore. Now you would think that if someone assured you of your safety, your response might be one of thankfulness and contentment. You would think that you may find some sort of solace or peace in that. That your fears were allayed and that you could breathe for a second. Is that what we find in our second chunk? In the response of the Jews around Jesus? Well, in short, no. It wasn't even close. If you could get a response that more polar, opposite, extreme, then it would surprise me. What do the Jews do? They start to execute him. Verses 31 and 33. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Have I shown you many good works from the Father? For which of those are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It's not for any good work you're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So what's clear here is that the Jewish leaders did not hear or contemplate the notion of safety when Jesus said, I and the Father are one. They hear other words than safety. They hear blasphemy. Blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. This was not the first time that they had accused Jesus of talking this way. If you Flick back to chapter 5 and verse 18, you'll read this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So they're not just saying in John 10, 33, you are acting like a God. They are saying you are acting like the God. That is what it means to say you make yourself equal with God, the same as God. So the response in some ways is understandable because blasphemy does equal execution. A man claiming to be God, were they right? Was Jesus actually making this claim? We all know that the words in verse 30 by themselves don't have to mean this, but they were right. They were understanding those words and Jesus knew they were right. The whole context of the gospel of John says that they were right. 
cross-reference it with me. John 1 and 1, as I've already said in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14 from the same chapter, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 5, 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. John 8, 5, sorry, John 8 and 58, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. John 10 and 18, as Lewis read, I have authority to lay down my life and I have authority to take it back up. So we know that this charge of blasphemy in John 10, 33 is based on something that Jesus' adversaries were seeing correctly. He was claiming to be equal with God. And for that, they were about to kill him. Verse 31 says that they picked up stones. Is that how we as a society, sometimes react to this message of Jesus. I think it is. Society at large rails against Jesus. It rails against his claim to be God. Every other faith doesn't accept this claim. Every secularist rails against this claim. There is no God. So how can Jesus be God? He was just a man, a good man maybe, but just a man and this claim of him being God, well that's, that's, that's nonsense. I'm going to eradicate that notion from my worldview. I'm going to execute that thought. But pause just for a moment. What if he is who he claims to be? What if he actually is God? Would you stone him? Would you eradicate him from your worldview? Would you deny him? Would you ignore him? Or would you worship him? If you find yourself with that quandary at the moment, please do not be dismissive of it. The reason that you're here this morning is because something has aroused your suspicion. Take time to think about it. Consider Jesus' claim. And for those of us who are in the convinced camp this morning, those who are worshipping rather than stoning Jesus, then let us ask ourselves this question this morning. Are we a silent bystander, allowing the noise of the crowd to drown out Jesus' claim? Or are we vocal in declaring it? Are we vocal in declaring it with urgency? Are we vocal in declaring it with love? We have heard Jesus' answer. We have seen the Jews' reaction. What then is Jesus' response? The Jews have tried to stone Jesus. Jesus then buys time by cross-referencing Scripture and bemuses them in puzzlement. We read that in verses 35 and 36, where he invites the Jews to think about what they understand as God's and the Son of God. But then Jesus goes on to say something merciful and gracious. He says this, look, if you don't believe what I am saying, if you don't buy into that figure of speech that I told you earlier, if you refuse to hear what I answer when you ask me, am I the Messiah? Then please at least consider my works. 
Look at verses 37 and 38 with me. If I am doing the works of the Father, then do not believe me. Sorry, if I'm not doing the works of the Father, then do not believe me. But if you do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Look at the miracles. Look at how I live. Look at creation. Look at me fulfilling prophecy in the way that I live and in the things that I do. Do you not see that I am the Father? Even if my words don't convince you, do you not see it from my life? A lesson to us here, I think. A lesson to let us remember that we are to practice what we preach. We can't preach grace without being gracious. We can't preach love without being loving. We can't preach forgiveness without being forgiving. People may not listen to our words as followers of Christ. But church, oh how they observe our lives. Is that representative? And is our life representative of what we would say? Are we cognizant with the fact that our greatest witness could perhaps be the way that we model Christ with our actions and deeds over what we choose to say? Of course, this claim of Jesus about his works was as just as scandalous to the Jews as his spoken claim to be the Messiah. And we read that he evades their captures, they respond to save season. The narrative then moves on. Verse 40, he went across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. On first reading, this feels like a bit of filler text between our narrative in John 10 and the story of Lazarus that's about to come in John 11. But actually, this is part of Jesus' response. Jesus responds by going to fertile ground. Our Jerusalem story has ended with anger and unbelief and murderous plans on behalf of the Jews at Jesus' claims. But across the Jordan, on the other side, we see another side of the coin. We find people that believe. Verse 41, and many came to him and he said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many, many believed in him there. The gospel writer John is showing us the key to faith. The kind of soil on which faith springs up and grows. He says that this place was where John the Baptist had preached and baptized. In other words, this, this place where John's message was embraced and respected, as a result, ended with people's faith flourishing in the Lord Jesus. And what did John, the gospel writer, comment about John the Baptist's ministry? What did the writer choose to focus on? What did he report? He said this, John did no sign everything that God said about the man was true. In other words, John's ministry was utterly unpretentious. He was not after fame. He threw the spotlight purely on Jesus. And wherever that mindset is admired and embraced, faith in Jesus flourishes. 
It didn't flourish in Jerusalem. They rejected John and his message. But where John's humble mindset was embraced, people recognized Jesus. They heard his voice. They became his sheep. John the Baptist's words from John 3 say this. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Our call, church, is to lead humble lives. Let not our message be pretentious. Let not our message be arrogant. Let not our message be influenced by the clamor of fame and self-recognition. Jesus is the Messiah. That's the answer. We are called to accept rather than reject. That's the reaction. We are called to humility. That's the response. For the fertile ground where people come to faith is found where people know that they must decrease as Christ must increase. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, the one who has told us plainly that he is the fulfillment of the prophecies of old. The one who has come to be our rescuing king. The one who has come to be our saviour. The one who has come to die on that cross and then be resurrected from the grave cancelling the sin that was due to hold us to account Heavenly Father we pray that our reaction to that claim will be one that is accepting one that is willing one that seeks to worship and to share rather than to reject and stone And Lord, we pray that we would be humble and generous in our telling of that message. Lord, that we would recognize that we must decrease for your name to increase. Lord, may that be our prayer this morning and this week and indeed in the years ahead. In your precious son's name. Amen.